0: Couple of, a couple of weeks ago, uh, on a Wednesday night, uh, we had a congregational meeting, and at that meeting we, uh, this is not part of the sermon, by the way, at the meeting we uh, nominated elders, and then while they were counting the votes, since there were so many people there, Dr. Young shared, really from his heart, a couple of things. First, he shared about how the church is run, which in a church this size, we don't often, don't often do that, and we might have questions sometimes about the organization and the setup of the church. And then he spent a good while talking about something that he really is hesitant to talk about, and that is the church budget and giving and money. And many, many people who were there that night really appreciated the, what he said, and we wanted to make that available to the entire church. And I know speaking, that, that Dr. Young would love if you would take the opportunity to listen and watch the message that he shared on that Wednesday night. So what we have done is we have put that on the web page. And if you would like to watch it, it's very simple. I'm, I'm not technically, technologically challenged in any way, but all you have to do to watch that message, and it's worth your time, is to go to the graceavan.org web page. And then on the far right, there is a little square that says YouTube. And if you click on that YouTube, it'll take you to a Vimeo page. And on that page, under most recently uploaded videos, you'll see that video. It's a lot less complicated than I've explained it. It's only two clicks. But I just wanted to give you the opportunity to know that because we would really love it if you would, uh, if you would watch that uh, message from Dr. Young because it would bless you and it's very much worth your time. Now back in October, if you were here, and if you remember, we talked about the opening chapter of Revelation and we talked about Jesus Christ and about how Jesus Christ appeared to John. We all have this scrapbook of, of, of our view of what Jesus looked like. And in that passage, he might not be like we picture him. And we get a little bit of an indication of that at Christmas time when we think of, of Jesus as the little baby in the manger and we contrast that with that announcement from all of the heavenly hosts of his arrival. And as uh, Jim said at the Christmas concert a few weeks ago, it wasn't just two or three heavenly hosts. It was a big deal. It was a big deal on earth, and it was a big deal in heaven that there was a glorious uproar of sound and light accompanying the rival and the welcoming of the king of all creation to the earth. It was a big deal. I mean, the anticipation and the, uh, the excitement of the shepherds and the heavenly host, it's quite a bit larger than just a, a baby in a manger. And now in our passage today, about 90 years after that event, we find the same Jesus, he's no longer a baby, he's there in awesome glory, his eyes are like blazing fire. He is a picture of dazzling royalty in power and authority. And in Revelation chapter 2, which is our passage, we find him walking along amidst the seven lampstands. And he would, uh, uh, those lampstands represent churches. They actually represent churches, seven churches in, in modern day Turkey, but they also represent churches all over the world that manifest like a lampstand, the light of the world. And before we get to the passage, let let this sink in just a little bit. Because in the Old Testament, priests would walk among the lampstands. And whenever the wicks would, would, would wear out and they would become useless, they would replace those wicks and they would guard them and they would preserve them and they would take care of them. And they would put fresh oil in those lamps and they would relight them so that the lamps could provide light. But if for some reason, I guess, if those lampstands were unable to produce light, they'd throw them out. Jesus not only tends to these seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, but he tends to his church today. Jesus Christ tends to Grace of Anne. So what we're reading are the words of Jesus In Revelation chapter 2, here's what the word of the Lord says. To the angel, and and angel means messenger, and in this case the messenger would be the pastor who would receive this letter and read it to the congregation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, that's the leaders of each church, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's writing this to the church in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you, have, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured the hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have left your first love. Then he gives commands. He says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the word of the Lord. It lasts forever. A couple of years ago, Marilyn and I were invited to an ice cream social. There was a fundraiser for a church, a small church in, in southern Illinois where we lived. It seems that there was a group of Austrians who made it up the Mississippi Mississippian flatboats and decided to settle there in southern Illinois. And they established a Lutheran church in the town of Cornthal. They began the church in 1860. Unfortunately, in 1949, the church closed and they had their last service. So this group of people had formed a board to keep the building going as a monument. What was once a church is now a monument to days gone by. What happened? And what happens that causes between 3,500 and 4,000 churches in America to close each year. What happened? Or maybe you might remember coming to Christ in a very real way. It was powerful. Maybe it was in VBS, or maybe it was at a, a youth retreat, or maybe it was while you were in college or, or through the ministry of a, of a friend, and, and maybe you remember how wonderful it was, how, how cool it was, that the, the simple joy and the peace that Jesus died for you. And you look forward to reading the Bible. And you look forward to getting involved in ministry, helping others to to what you have. But then in the course of years, nothing seems to be quite that simple anymore. And what was so new and what was so fresh back then has kind of lost its freshness. And maybe instead of being engaged in church like you used to be, you just go. And your delight is bound up in duty rather than in devotion to Christ. What happened? That's what our passage addresses today. That's why it says, so he or she who has an ear, let him hear. He says to the angel in the church in Ephesus. Well, I've got to give you a little history lesson to serve as a background because it'll help you appreciate the things that are going on there. Ephesus was a city of about a quarter of a million. It was prosperous. There's a big harbor there. There's a major crossroads. So ideas and commerce were all around uh, uh, Ephesus. There were wonderful homes there. There were homes that were built with gardens cascading down and there were temples. There are temples in the town of Ephesus for, uh, where you could worship Julius Caesar, where you could worship Claudius, you know, emperor worship, idols. But none of the temples matched the temple that was found in the central business district of Ephesus. The great temple of Diana, or some call it the temple of Artemis. It's actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was massive. It was so big that you could put this entire church and the parking lot inside the temple, and it was opulently and ornately designed, and it was the center of the town of Ephesus and it was big business I mean in that temple there were there were uh silversmiths who made shrines for for their idol worship and their pagan Worship. There were builders there. There were suppliers there. There are kiosks there that would sell trinkets. There was even a bank there. It was a the temple. This pagan temple was a regional banking center, and of course, there were temple prostitutes there who served as a link to the great god Artemis. The center of pagan worship in the center of the town, and gross stuff went on there. One Greek writer. Made the comment that the morality of animals exceeds those of the Ephesians. But God chose to plant a church right there in the midst of all that. And it was exciting. There was some crazy stuff that was going on. I mean, this church in Ephesus, to whom this letter is addressed, started in the midst of a good old fashioned revival. Let me just read a little bit about it from Acts chapter 19 that spells out the story of the things that were going on there. Just, just listen to it while I read. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And listen, it says that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Then it goes on to say, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver years and years of days' wages. And then it says this, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's what was going on in this pagan town of Ephesus. It was exciting. And it didn't stop there. If you were to continue to read, you'd see that there was a silversmith there, and they made their living by making shrines in the Tessel for pagan idol worship in the temple, and he noticed that the impact of this church in Ephesus Ephesus was growing so strong that it was hurting his business, that they were telling people not to worship in this way and not to go into the temple, and he said, I've gotta do something about this or I'm gonna be out of a job. So he got all of his friends together who also were silversmiths and says, we have to do something, and they started a riot. The impact on the culture of this little church in Ephesus started out of a riot, the moral and ethical impact of the gospel that was being proclaimed. So what we know is that this little church came into being in the midst of a mighty work of God, and people were repenting, they were coming to Christ, their lives were changing, they were making an impact on the culture, and it was an exciting church plant And God was using them not only so that they could be blessed, but so that they could bless other people. Now we come to this letter that Jesus is dictating to the Apostle John about 30 to 40 years after this church was founded. Let's take a look at this and see just how they were doing. Well, when you first read it, they were doing pretty well. The Lord praises the Ephesian church for their hard work. He praises them for their perseverance, and that word perseverance means to to hold up when you're being pressed down. They were hard workers. Here's a page from the preacher John Wesley's diary. Just listen to this if you want an example of hard work. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's, deacons said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday evening, May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday morning, May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's, deacons called a special meeting and said, I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in meadows, chased out of the meadows as a bull was turned loose during the services. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me. Like Wesley, the church in Ephesus, they weren't quitters. They endured hardship. They persevered, and they were committed for that. And not only that, they took a stance on idols, these idols that were a threat to these craftsmen who made their living making these statues. And they lived in a society that said Caesar is Lord, and yet their witness is that Jesus is Lord, and that conflict could lead to treason and it could lead to death. And then we learn from what Jesus commended them for, that they knew their doctrine, that they could call out false teachers. And they took pains to keep the church doctrine and the lifestyle pure. I mean, these guys weren't just a, a bunch of, you know, lazy, take-it-or-leave-it, self-seeking church goers. They had a lot of things that they were doing that Jesus was commending them for. They worked hard. And it looks to me like this was a pretty good church. You ever have your boss say to you, I need to talk to you? Why don't you come into my office? So what are you thinking? So you go into his office and you sit down and he starts telling you all of the good things you're doing. He starts complimenting you for the work that you're doing with the company. Well, many of us, if you're like me, would be saying, okay, okay, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a but. There's going to be a yet. There's going to be a nevertheless. Even though you're doing all these wonderful things, here's what I really want to Talk to you about. Well, in verse 4, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have abandoned your first love. I have trouble with this. I mean, how could they have left their first love? They look to me like they're a, a pretty solid and a pretty mature group of believers, and they were obviously committed to Christ to be able to to take a stand in such a pagan city. They look pretty, pretty good to me. Yet if you look at what Jesus is saying, they're in a pretty serious situation. This love that for some reason they had left, well if they don't recapture it, then Jesus will remove their lampstand. How could this happen? how could this happen in Ephesus? How could it happen to, to any good church? Well, to answer it, I think we've got to figure out what exactly was this first love that they had abandoned. You know, Maybe things had crowded out their love. Crowded out their commitment to Christ. Maybe their commitment to Christ was replaced by, by comfort and compromise and complacency. That's what a lot of sermons and a lot of commentaries say. But it seems to me that that couldn't be the case because they were holding up in an alien culture, working hard, promoting sound teachings. It seems that they're committed to Christ. Hmm. Well, then, what of, this, what of this warning? After the warning, if you read the passage, Jesus gives three commands. He tells the church to remember. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. They had already fallen. And then he tells them to repent. And to go back to do the things that they did at first. So then whatever this first love is, it must have had something to do with how they were engaged when the church started. And I think maybe it's this. If you read the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote, you will find that they were commended for a couple of things. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, they were commended for the love that they had for people. Specifically, the love that they had for the saints. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, when he's concluding the letter, he talks about them and describes them as those who love our Lord Jesus with a love that's incorruptible. You see, this church was known early on for their love for God, for their love for each other, and for their love for people. And you can see it in the way that the church started, that their love for Jesus Christ and their love for other people was so strong that they were willing to do just about anything, including going out into the foreign culture with the gospel in that church was growing. But now look at their commendations. Several decades later, you don't see them commended for their love for Jesus or their love for people. They're commended for their hard work. They're commended for protecting their doctrine and the purity of the church. What happened? I'll tell you what I think happened. I think somewhere along the line, they began circling their wagons. The wonderful things that they were commended for were building the church. They were protecting the church when the church began, I suspect they were excited about the impact that the gospel was, was going forth from the church, the impact that it was having on their city, in their culture, and in lives that were really changing. And maybe time began to take its toll. 30 or 40 years, that's another generation. And maybe as they matured, they lost that childlike love and excitement that comes in the simple gospel. Or let me say it this way. Our philosophy of ministry which if you go to our homepage and you click on About Us, you will see our philosophy of ministry and it says it well. It says, reaching an unchurched world through maturing Christians. And perhaps what had happened is that church, this church in Ephesus had started with the first part of our ministry statement. They were reaching an unchurched world. They were engaged in taking the message of Christ to people that were around them, but as time moved on, they began to mature. And maybe they became so focused on their maturing through their teaching and through their holding up doctrine and through protecting the church that maybe they had become way out of balance. And now Jesus is saying, fix this or I will remove your lampstand and you will die. That's a serious thing. So what do you do? How do you, how do you keep that balance in the church? How do, how do you keep that balance in your, in your personal life? I think what he's saying is he's telling these guys in Ephesus to go back and to remember to remember that simple love and excitement that existed 30 years ago when, when all they needed was a squirt gun and they were ready to storm the gates of hell. You remember that, 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 that love of Jesus that was first, of first importance and the simplicity of it. And you remember that love of people that is like unto it. And then he says to repent and to return to doing the things you did at first. It's not a suggestion. These are imperative. These are commands. Or he says, I'll remove your lampstand. He says, my kingdom will continue, but you'll no longer be a light in it. That's powerful stuff. So what does that look like? What does that look like in their context, and even more so, what does it look like for us personally, and what does it look like in the context of of Grace of I think it can look a lot of different ways. But I can tell you one word that would be an application of this passage. That word is evangelism. What better way to express your love for Christ and your love for other people than by sharing with them the greatest gift that they can possibly own. You see, if Christians don't share the gospel, then people won't become Christians. And if people don't become Christians, then there's no churches. And that little church in Cornthall is a monument to this. What happened? Well, in the first 60 years of their existence, They held their services in German. They were already circling the wagons. They were already set on maintaining what was going to become a future monument. And now their lampstand has been gone for 60 years. They have a nice building there. It's got a fresh coat of paint on it. But there's no lampstand. And maybe that is what was happening in Ephesus. Maybe they had become a really good church at protecting what they had and keeping a good church good and circling the wagons. Now think with me. You know, a church can have a wonderful missions program where they go to other lands and where they go to other cultures, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and, and that's a commendable ministry or or they could have a Sunday school, they could have a theological school right there on their campus. And they can have wonderful committees and they can have a, a great reputation and they can have a wonderful staff and a really good church. You, you know who's on staff in Ephesus? Paul, Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos was a guest speaker. The Apostle John That was their staff. It's said that when the Apostle John, who had moved there from Jerusalem as an old man, that they would carry him into the church in Ephesus, and he would exhort the members to to little children love one another. That That was their staff. But if people aren't coming to Christ, then a church will die a natural death. And that is evidence that Jesus has removed the lampstand. So how can we think about this? How can we uh, wind this up? It seems to me that when it's talking about that they had lost their first love, that first love is an excitement about a love for Christ equal with a love for people. That's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. You know why we share the good news? You know why people share the, people who share the gospel, you know why they do it? One reason is that it, it's a command. We're told to go into the world. But I think the real reason, when it comes down to it, that people who share the gospel share it is because they want what they want people to have what they have. They want people to have the greatest gift, a relationship with Jesus Christ. They want people to have the good news that God has graciously given them. I think a question that we need to ask ourselves from time to time is this. How excited am I about the gospel? How well am I engaged by the gospel, the good news? Do I love people enough to give them what I have? Well, I go to the extent necessary out of love for the gospel to engage people in allowing them to have what we share. I guarantee you, one of the fears or concerns of Dr. Young of, or of any pastor is that the church they have given their life to ceases to be a lamp and just becomes a monument. And that will happen if a church ceases to take the gospel wherever they go. Because it's really simple. The gospel is not about a monument. The gospel is about a movement, a movement of loving Christ and of loving people. Are you giving the gospel away? It's not always easy. Many of us struggle with, even preachers struggle with evangelism. And if that's the case, maybe it's time to go before the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I got to be honest. I'm not, I'm not really willing to put myself out there. I'm afraid that I might say the wrong thing, that I might mess somebody up. That can't happen. Because evangelism is ultimately God's business. We can't bring anybody to Christ. Only the Lord can do that. We're just getting in that pipeline of evangelism. He's the one that's in control of it. He's the one that's in charge of it. Or we might say, you know, I don't want to share something that's so valuable to me and then to have it rejected. Because I would feel like I'm being rejected but Lord, I want to count on you to make me a faithful witness. And I want to count on you to shape the opportunities in my life in such a way that I'll see you work. And I want to yield to your plan and yield to your purpose. Use me, Lord, in other people's lives. Give me antennas for people, for where they are, and give me that willingness to step out. So what has the Spirit said? What has Jesus said in this letter to the Ephesians? What has he said to them, and what is he saying to us? Well, I think the Lord praises his people when they work hard, when they work hard for the gospel, when they they work hard for the kingdom, when they're doctrinally pure. When we live holy lives, the Lord commends us for that. But the Spirit also tells us that the Lord who wants us to be filled with love wants it to not only be love for him, but love for each other and love for people outside these walls. So to him who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you don't leave us alone. We're grateful to you for how you've blessed this church. We are here because we were reached with the gospel. In some form or fashion, there's evangelism done, and we are here as a result of that. Thank you that all that we do is go in your power, and you're the one that's in charge of the results. Father, help us to examine our lives, not in a guilt-producing way, but just in a way that says, Lord, I want to know you better and I want to serve you more, and I can't do it on my own. I need your power in order to do that. Give us that grace, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.